Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. Well, today we are about to conclude uh, John 16. This is Jesus' final discourse, final farewell, upper room discourse, whatever you want to call it. Uh, This is the final part of this. We'll have been in this six weeks uh, after the day. Six weeks and six hours, really, uh, usually an hour each time. And then each chapter usually takes about six weeks. uh, And it's truly been astounding uh, portion of scripture. We say that every time. When we get to 17, I'll be no different as we get into the high priestly prayer, which I'm I'm really excited about getting into that and understanding. And I think there's always been a precursor here as as the scripture kind of goes towards prayer. No, John 16, as it starts to unfold, it starts to get into a lot of talk about prayer, and we mentioned that last week, and I know many were challenged by that, our own personal prayer life, and how what, how we pray, and what we bring to the Lord in prayer, and uh, today we'll conclude with that, and I'll mention it again, uh, but before we do that, as always, let's bow our head and prepare our hearts for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness Uh, when we are not good, for your mercy, when we at times are not merciful, for your grace, when we at times are anything but gracious. We thank you for your sanctifying work. We thank you first and foremost that we are reconciled to you through your son because of the cross, because of his ultimate sacrifice. So we open our hearts again to you this morning, God, and ask that you would pour fresh manna, uh, bring the word forth into the deepest recesses of our heart that will change as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John 16, 28 to 33, the last part will be, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world is Jesus' final statement in John 16, which we'll get there. Uh, Jesus' final discourse, it's, it is a remarkable scripture and when you think about it, it's just a conversation. It's never just a conversation when Jesus speaks. It's never, it's just a conversation when the Lord speaks. It's never just a conversation. It's, it's got such depth and weight and the word of God and the words of Christ are so rich and weighty. Um, they're so rich and weighty that I cannot think for a, of a reason why anyone would choose to preach or teach anything other than the Word of God. When the Word of God itself is so weighty, yet the churches seem to reduce it, and we speak about so many other shallow, trivial things when we've got very much the the God-breathed Word here, and all we really need to do is, my job is just to get this right. See, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't need to do much else other than understand what this means and make sure I communicate it to you so... Whatever it says is what I say, and that's it. Job done. That is kind of it, really. Uh, the minute that I start adding my own take and my own thing, of course, as communicators, as preachers, we have to... Uh, there's different gifts and skills in how we do that. But the, the key is, is just for anybody, is just to open the word and make sure you preach the word. When, when Vicky McLeavy spoke to the women a couple of weeks ago, that's what she done. She's speaking to the women. You know, um, outstandingly. No, uh, and it's what was outstanding is not so much Vicky, what was outstanding was the word. It's the word that was outstanding, uh, and it truly was, and it's a massive difference from <coughs> trying to come up with your own idea, your own pathy, uh, your own uh, take on things. Of course, the whole of the 16th chapter of, of John is centred on this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, uh, that will guide the apostles and, of course, all believers uh, to all truth uh, and help them remember all things that, that, that Christ said purposely for the apostles, for them then, uh, many of them to go on and write the New Testament 
so that they would be able to remember all that and the Holy Spirit was there to equip them. Uh, the God-breathed word to, to write this, uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, but last week uh, we started the, the, the final section and I want to just read that again, uh, starting from verse 23 of John 16. John 16, 23, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. We spoke much about that last week. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative, it's maybe saying your Bible, it might say in parables or proverbs, uh, speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I was chatting to one of my brothers just last week. It seems something dead simple, but I totally got what he was saying. He says, it's only until this week, he says, it may seem really silly, but it's only until like last week that I truly understand why you say in Jesus' name and why we actually pray in Jesus' name. And it, it made perfect sense to me because even though we say in Jesus' name, uh, you don't really have a doctrine at times of understanding why you say that, but this explains why and it goes to detail why we say, why we pray in his name. Uh, and what a wonderful statement at the end, for the Father loves you because you have loved me. And we have made God the God of love of all and all things. Well, the church has, I'm sure. Uh, Jesus says, the Father loves us because we love Jesus. More than that, we know Jesus. We know who he is. We know his sacrifice. We know him in our heart. And today, again, we have hundreds of ways to God, didn't we? There's now hundreds of ways to God. You know, if you think of what's happening in the Church of Scotland just at this moment, they're now in this process. See, the, what happens is, is Spurgeon says this, that the, the gates are open now. See, when you just step away from Scripture, the gates are open and now the Church of Scotland is now going to be passing bills and making it, uh, being part of uh, gay marriage and saying that that's okay and uh, gay marriage is okay. Uh, and they'll just be terrified, you know, there'll come a time in that, that'll be classed as hate speech probably, you know, that'll be recorded as hate speech probably shortly, what I've just said there. Uh, but the Church of Scotland have embraced that. Uh, it's, uh, truly in the next, I would say in the next five, ten years, you'll almost, the Church of Scotland will probably be non-existent completely. Nothing. Nothing but, nothing but empty buildings with a for sale sign for blocks of flats. That's all you've got to see. And the day we've got that in the world, in, in church, where, where God is anything you want him to be. No, as long as it's loving, it's God. Uh, it's no new. It's... But the Church of Jesus Christ today is claiming that uh, there's so many ways, even the church. We can understand that the world claims that there are many ways to God. No, we, 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 I wouldn't expect any different for the world. I don't expect the world. I would not expect the world. Uh, to see uh, the, the, the truthy, the lies and the abuse and the scaremongery of the new scariants, I mean variants. Uh, <laughs> What's next? Uh, people are over coming home from Portugal. All right, okay, because it was green and now it's amber, I know. But it's still the exact same. Oh, and you just think... It's never going to go away. It's just going to keep happening. Oh, the next thing will happen, and the next thing will happen, and there'll be a new scary in next week, and they'll add something, they'll add something, and just, just to control people's life. I don't expect the world at all, and I've said it for day one, I don't expect the world to see the truth there. They're blinded. What's shocking is, is that believers don't see it, or choose to ignore it, whatever comes first. Uh, when the church starts claiming what love is and there's many ways to God, Joel Austin was asked if Muslims will get to heaven. 
He says, well, you know how he does that droll voice, I'm not going to make it up. Well, you know. He says, well, you know, if you're a good person. You know, I think if you're a good person, really, if you're a good person, you'll be in heaven. I hear Christians saying all the time, you know what, they're a good guy, they're a good person. They just need to get a grippy things and that. They're, they're no good. There's nothing good in us except which is in Christ. And Joel says that, well, if you're a good person, I believe, yeah. Other guys says, uh, Paul Scanlon says that, you know, you'll be shocked who's there and shocked who's no. I know who won't be. So sure. The Bible says no one is good. Alcoholics Anonymous and all these recovery programs says just pick your God to your own understanding. Others start to create their own God to suit their beliefs and They think it's to suit their beliefs. I think it's to suit their sin. In fact, I know it's to suit their sin. I was reading yesterday. I'd never heard this word before or this, this, this movement or whatever you want to call, call it. It's called Marketplace Ministries. I've heard of Jesus in the marketplace. Marketplace Ministries. Have any heard of that? I hadn't. It's, it's, it's basically Marketplace Ministries who, is men who used to be pastors or leaders of churches who have left the church. They're not still part of the church. They've actually left the church to do ministry in the marketplace, in the world. Uh, as I research these, I have not seen one, not one, I know of that has went into that marketplace ministry by leaving the church and by not staying planted and being led out from the church who don't very quickly, almost instantly, that's the very reason they left, teach another gospel that's not the gospel at all. Galatians 1, 6 and 10, what 6 to 10 says this. I love what Paul says. I would love to have a chat with these guys about this scripture. Because the very same people that teach this stuff will also do a teaching based on the scripture and bring their own metaphor and their own take. And I'd love to ask these people that create another gospel, I would love to ask them, is, why is it okay for you to use that in your message that you're taking around the world? Okay? But then you're dissing that scripture completely. As you pick and choose what suits your marketplace ministry. This is what Paul says about this. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who... This is, this, see what makes this scripture... Many things make this scripture astounding. You know, Paul's talking to the church in Galatia who are starting to embrace other things. You know, the, the gospel's now getting changed. Uh, Galatia's starting to embrace other things. Other people are coming into the church and the church in Galatia starting to bring another gospel or another message or a message that suits their narrative. And, and, and Paul, Apostle Paul, you would need to, if you disagree with, I would love these guys to argue with Apostle Paul about this. They don't even need to argue with me. I would love to sit down with all these, these Rob Bells and all these guys that have went into the marketplace ministry as preaching another gospel, have them all together and, and actually, actually say, can you, can you explain what Paul was meaning when he said this then, if he didn't mean this? And this is what Paul says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Anybody who brings another gospel is perverting the gospel completely. But even if we, talk, Paul taught himself, or an angel from heaven. You know, because they've got a new download, haven't they? And Paul's even addressing that. We don't care about your new download. We don't care about what you think you're hearing from God as if you're getting fresh manna, some new revelation. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that, than that what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now, 
I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that, that which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? And then Paul gives the answer to the problem. Here's the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem is pleasing men. For selfish gain, of course. For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. The problem is the longer we're in the world and you start embracing the world and everything in the world, then the world starts telling you what kind of God is acceptable to them. You understand? Before you were saved, you had an idea about what kind of God was acceptable to you. Anyone that's no saved, some are totally atheists, they don't believe in God at all, although it amazes me that they're still angry at him. But in that marketplace, in that world, we know cover. And this is why you get these evangelists going out. We know they're no part of a church. They're no part of anything. And slowly but surely what happens is they preach another gospel. Me and Callum were at the Shepherds Conference last year. You could have heard a pin drop when Paul Washer stood on the platform and he asked every evangelist to stand up. So every evangelist missionary who was in the world. And he rebuked them. He rebuked them for spending so much time in their environment that they'd forgot to preach the gospel. Paraphrase what happened. I was talking to me, Calum, I ended up talking to a guy who, who worked in we Native American Indians in the Yukon. We up in North America. And he was livid, absolutely livid at Paul Washer's rebuke. And uh as I got speaking to him, I says, well, all fair and well, I says, how many of the people that you're living with and starting to live in that world with, how many of them have came to know Christ? He says, that's not the point. I says, it's, it's the only point. <laughs> it's the only point. None of them. And what happens is, as they get into the world and they start embracing the world, and then the world starts telling you what kind of Jesus is acceptable to them, does it not? And when the world keeps telling you what kind of... Because you've got to know that the world will not accept a Jesus who will not accept a God who would judge. They would not accept a God who would... Uh, who would say that sinners are enemies to him, which is fact and true. So what ends up happening is they embrace that world. They were in it anyway. That's what took them out in the first place. They went out from us because what? They were not of us. But then the voices of the world start telling them what's acceptable to them. And because they're not sitting under the authority of the word, they're sitting under expository preaching every single week, they just start creating their own story. Even when they're not on, they don't go to church. Meaning even when they're not preaching, they don't go to church on that Sunday. Which is shocking, isn't it? And it's, what I find shocking is, is that when they're not preaching, they won't go to church on Sunday, yet churches will still invite them to come and speak at their church. Bad gatekeeping. But what happens is, is they start embracing that world and the world starts dictating to them what's acceptable to them and then they start to, they start to manufacture the world to suit what people will be willing to accept. And before you know it, Pack of cars just tumble. And what's happened, that happens, that's in the Church of Scotland. That's what's happened there, and many like it. They've started to listen to the voice of the culture in the world and what's acceptable to them. And they think if they don't then accept and embrace that culture and that world, the world won't love Jesus. So they start embracing it, and what have they done? They've created another gospel. I've no idea how these guys or that stuff I don't know, I've no idea how they could interpret that scripture. Anna's sitting in the front and I'm sure she would, if you just read that out here, she'll be like, that's what that means. I mean, it's no rocket science what Paul's trying to say there. He's saying it so clearly. And I've no idea how these guys can interpret it any other way what Paul's saying. Of course, it's important to say this as we, as we, as, uh, it's vital that I say this. God didn't start loving us 
when we love Jesus. It's important we say that. So I might have said that at the beginning. Somebody's going, oh, really? God loves me because I first loved Jesus. No, no, no. Uh, God loved us when we were still sinners. And it was him that gave us a heart to love Christ because he first revealed his love for us. He first loved us. John Calvin says this, God loves us in a secret way. I love this. God loves us in a secret way before they are called if they are among the elect. Isn't that amazing? And in a sense, I can't speak for anyone else here. Uh, but I, I, if I look at my life, I can even think for a young age, as much as I was miles away, I always had this sense that God loved me. This year was I never accepted that love, nor could I, without him first drawn me to love him. Yet Calvin rightly points out, but yet, when we're still not reconciled to God, we are accounted as his enemies. However, God in his mercy called us out of darkness, out of alienation, it talks about in uh, Ephesians. And reconciled us through his son. Therefore we can, what? We can approach the throne room of grace with boldness. Because we now have Christ's righteousness. Know that we're righteous. However, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. Nor does it mean we'll have no faults or indwelling sin. J.C. Ryle writes, it is the excellence of a holy man. Wait till you hear this. This will kill you. Uh, it is the, uh, in a good way. It is in the excellence of a holy man that he's not at peace with indwelling sin. As others are. He hates it. He mourns over it. He's no crap. See when it says he mourns over it as in the Beatitudes. It doesn't mean that we mourn over it because we miss it. We mourn over it because... We're devastated that we even had it. He hates it. He mourns over it and longs to be free from its company. End quote. Isn't that amazing? I was talking to a couple of people this week and they were just sharing some difficult things they went through in the week and reactions. And I says, how do you feel? How, how are you with that? And it, and it was total devastation and that's the way it should be for a believer. The very words were, I'm totally appalled at the thought that I would even act that way or behave that way. I think one of the saddest things is, is that so-called believers are not appalled at some of their behaviour. Ought to be ashamed, isn't it, at our behaviour and our thinking. A believer, it justifies it. We go to question. We've not got to look to sanctification with that stuff. Sometimes we've got to go back and look at <laughs> a bit further upstream. And Ryle says that they hate it, they mourn it, they long for to be free from it. A true believer cannot bear uh, to be walking in indwelling sin. It's such a, a defilement. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's you ever get embarrassed with your behaviour? Well, I'm totally embarrassed with that. I'm actually embarrassed with that. Totally, I'm embarrassed with, with my level of hiding. You ever been embarrassed with your level of hiding? But all that stuff should shame a believer. All that stuff should appall a believer. All that stuff should make a believer cringe at the thought that they would even be like, okay, sometimes in the heat of the moment, you're not thinking that, are you? In the heat of the moment, you're like, I'm absolutely fine and I'm quite right to be raging. But it doesn't take long before you're ashamed, devastated, appalled at the very thought that you would behave like that when you're in Christ. The great thing is, though, that we do have a high priest, an advocate, who, who understands that. Hebrews 4, 14, 16 is a great comfort. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest talking about Christ, 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a, do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weakness. I don't understand, well, I do understand pride. Why we would act somehow towards God as if we weren't weak, as if he doesn't know, as if our prayers have got to be really heavenly and really sorted and, you know, really together. I think I quoted yesterday, maybe in my notes here, I can't remember, that when John Bunyan says, the greatest prayer he ever prayed could almost damn every sinner in the world. Such was the way he approached God in prayer. Knowing that he was anything but a sinner. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weakness. If we have a high priest who will sympathise with our weakness, I think this, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore we should approach the throne room of grace with boldness. But that throne room of grace and boldness is not like the way the, the charismatic church tells you, like you declare it and name it and claim it. That's how, that's how they think that what that means. No, I just name it and claim it and you have not because you ask not. <laughs> oh, it couldn't be further away. Imagine approaching God. Just think of that. Now, just, just, let's just put that aside. Just think of approaching God with that level of arrogance. I mean, that in itself should kill you ever doing that, shouldn't it? Imagine approaching God with that level of arrogance. I'm telling you, God. So I've been in, honestly, I kid you not, I've been in charismatic meetings and prayer meetings where people are saying, thinking because they say it with such arrogance and boldness, it'll get God's attention. You're like, I'm telling you, God, I'm wanting that. And I'm, they think it's somehow virtuous or somehow gracious or somehow, somehow makes them faithful that they, they pray with such arrogance and boldness. I'm telling you, and I'm declaring it now. And they're like, go yourself, you're full of faith. I'm like, really? You think you can approach God like that? Crazy. Absolute Crazy. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weakness. It doesn't he say we, we, do have, we do not have a high priest who sympathises with our weakness. This is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say we do not have a high priest that go, totally gets how bold and arrogant you are and go for it, mate. Sympathise with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He's overcame. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain what? Mercy. Mercy. No stuff. We're not approaching what you're looking for. You have not because you ask not. What you want? A 42 inch telly? You've not asked for it. I've heard, I'm no joking when I say I've heard that stuff. I'm not making it up. It seems to be a lot of guys use the television thing. When me and James are in Zambia and James were there at different times, one of the one of the ultimate goals for the pastors in the township, and there was maybe about 15, 20,000 people lived in it, and every second house had a pastor. Maybe within that township there might be about I don't know, hundred churches. Why? The ultimate goal for the pastor, not know them all, I would say ninety-five percent of them was to get a telly. That was the goal, to get a television. Therefore we come boldly at the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in what? A time of need. A time of temptation. A time of struggles. A time of battle. We don't just have a high priest who loves us. We have a father who loves us as sons and daughters as well. The word love there is, is, is phileo. It's, it's like a loving father or a loving mother, that love. And therefore we must know that when we approach God in prayer. Also it's in that knowing that we really should be bringing all our shortcomings to him and all our pressing needs. No, our pressing needs is not, is, not, is not a good deal, a good deal in a carpet. It's not a good deal in the next house you get, right? Okay. How could you ever approach God 
with such carnal desires. It's appalling, isn't it? I said last week, a believer's prayer is truly a holy affair. A believer's prayer is a holy affair because we enter into communion, not just with Christ, but we enter into communion with the Father. It's quite astounding, isn't it? Therefore, we need not waste it in meaningless repetition. You still learn prayers. Oh, uh, circle of truth, hedge of protection. What are you talking about? Circle of truth, hedge of protection. We'd be, we paint a circle of truth, hedge of protection. You go to church after church and everybody seems to have learned prayers, then you're like, oh, what are you talking about? And what it is, it's, it's, it's much of it is to show off in front of other people that you can pray good prayers. Oh, did you hear me? You ever prayed a prayer before you've prayed publicly for a good prayer? Just me. You're praying, right, come on, this has to be a good prayer. Approaching a holy God. Approaching a holy God with such carnal, pathetic requests. Meaningless repetition. Shallow talk. Shallow talk. Thank you, some of your prayers. See, see, listen, this is challenging, I know. Some of your prayers are pathetically shallow, aren't they? No bearing of the heart, no bearing of the soul. See, when I read the great men of God of the past and read their talk when they write about prayer, it's, it, it's, so, it's so personal as well. But it's never shallow, it's... It's a bearing of the soul completely. Because they're seeking a holy God. Of course, we will always get the unwilling. Using that card to hide truth and transparency. So when people say, I, I don't really talk to folk much. There's way too much emphasis. I've got ahead of myself here. Let me just say this. Way too much emphasis in the churches on counselling. Way too much emphasis on counselling. Shockingly, way too much emphasis on counselling. Coaching. Isn't it? That's a new thing, isn't it? Coaches, maybe no new. Coaching. Mentoring. That's the thing, isn't it? Churches full of counselling, coaching and mentoring. And way too little, way too little and seeking a holy God. And this is what I say when I get ahead of myself. Of course, we'll always get unwilling and the unwilling. Using it, you know what? I don't need to talk to men and I don't really talk to people. I take it all to God. You know, they'll get out of jail free card for being honest. To hide truth and transparency. However, that, that language will always show up in their life. For no one who seeks truth and bears their hearts to the Father would not equally bear their heart to a brother and sister. Those who would not bear their heart to a brother and sister can guarantee that they're not bearing their heart to the Father. So when people say, us, oh, well, I just keep myself, I keep close counsel, all, the, all that stuff, and I, I just go to the Father myself and I deal with that. and Really? So you would bear that to the Father, but then you'd be ashamed to bear it to man. So then we say they seek the Lord well, being elusive. To man is truly someone who doesn't bear their soul to the Father at all. Someone who's not ashamed, nor trying to be prideful or hide. We'll have no problem in bearing the soul to man. We'll have no problem in having conversations about where they're at. We'll have no problem or issues in what man thinks of them because it's God that's tested their heart and they've already poured their heart out to God. A man who truly pours their heart out to God completely has no fear of what man thinks of him. But someone who doesn't pour their heart out to God. You can guarantee that very same person is the one who fears pouring their heart out and is a shallow conversation continually with man 
always. A man who truly understands the fear of the Lord will fear no threat of being open, my man. So some people think, oh, why is it I'm so, no, I really don't get to know them every time I talk to them. This, everything's shallow. And guarantee that that person's shallow with the Lord as well. Guarantee that that person's shallow with the Lord as well. Ed T. Wells says, sin makes truth irrelevant. End quote. Sin makes truth irrelevant. You see, without us taking all we are to him in prayer, we in turn will always shut out truth in all areas. People who fear truth get nervous round about truth when you start to talk about touching things that's making you itch and get to the nitty gritty. See, when I used to drink, I was an alcoholic and I was, oh, I don't know about, oh, I don't know about you. I'm sure you were near an alcoholic. Talk to Callum. Uh, See, when the conversation get near the truth, I get very nervous because I was a pathological liar. So the minute the conversation get anywhere near to, because I was fear, I'm going to get exposed here. I'm going to get exposed here. And I get really nervous. Because sin, it doesn't just make truth irrelevant. If we don't bear our soul to the Lord, we'll, sh- we'll shut it out at all costs. Without us taking all we are to him in prayer, we in turn will shut out truth in all areas of our life. Show me somebody who doesn't like truth and I'll show you somebody that's no bared their soul to the Lord. You start bearing your soul to the Lord completely. You'll not be ashamed of a man speaking truth to you nor will you hide nor shun it. A man who bears not his soul to God will be a man who's no free to live an open life in front of man. Brutal, isn't it? You would need to go some way to know that that's not true by looking in the mirror for half a second. I mean, you know, one look in the mirror half a second would, would go, that's, that's exactly it. And I find it challenging myself, Truly about understanding prayer. And I think what I said at the beginning, this is a precursor before we get to Jesus pouring his heart out in prayer. How amazing is it going to be when we actually see what real, real, real heart-rendering prayer looks like? I wonder why we don't have any victory. <laughs> then we don't take all the art of him in prayer. We'll always be fearful and often hostile to truth. Not just fearful to truth, hostile to truth. Welch adds this, if the gaze of man awakens fear in us, how much more the gaze of God? If we feel exposed by people, we will be devastated before God. Let me flip this quote in its head. Yet if we approach God with a heart of knowing whom we are, whose we are, humble and truthful submission, rendering our soul, pouring our soul out, how many prayers do we pray and we don't even get beyond the superficial, pathetic, well, Lord, my wee Auntie Jeannie, Thank you, love you, pray for my family, my neighbours, or this, the dog, the cat, and that. Jesus' name, amen. No, no soul bearing whatsoever. None. Don't spend enough time to bear your soul. Yeah, if we approach God with a heart of knowing him, knowing who we are, knowing whose we are, and in humble, truthful submission, that gaze from God will turn to comfort, always to comfort. And in turn, that gaze from man will only become an opportunity for you to share candidly and freely the gift of grace with God. 
Yeah. Why would you know when you've already bared your heart and soul to God? Why would you then so fear what man thinks and says about you? But yet Christians throughout, somebody asked me, what's the greatest battle that believers face? They're no free for man. Consumed by man. Controlled by man. Want to control man. Dependent on man. But yet when we bear our soul and our heart to God completely, then there's no fear of man. Because you've bared all to God. You've gave all to him. And therefore you can speak truly and candidly and freely. And for the counsel of a man is a deep ocean, but there is a man of understanding who will draw it out. We can understand, we, because we know we have a high priest who, who can sympathize with our struggles and battles. So it truly would be accurate for me to say, your lack of deep intimacy, rendering your soul and your prayer life will be revealed in your openness and honesty and your relationships. And in turn, our shallowness and our lack of depth in our relationships with man will be revealed and a shallow approach to bearing our soul to the Lord. Heavenly prayers, therefore, heavenly prayers lead to heavenly conversations. I truly love how Calvin puts it. We must rid ourselves of all alien cares which drive the mind this way and that way. Listen to this enticing it from heaven and dragging it back to earth. How scary that we pray to God and we try and drag God back to worldly thoughts rather than allow him to drag us and sometimes it practically is dragging us towards heavenly things. How many of your prayers is trying to drag God into a world that's full of carnality and flesh. Surely he pray for things that are so meaningless as far as eternity is concerned as to attempt to drag God into that. Praying for people he love us. Praying for people he want us. Praying for people not to leave us. Really? Praying not to get found out. How much of our prayer is like that? Trying to drag God back into the world to satisfy our flesh? Calvin gets more brutal as if it couldn't get any more. Many men are commonly guilty of serious sin as they shamelessly and irrelevantly make God a witness to their follies and fancy. Oh. You're making God a witness to your folly and fancy by praying nonsense. Be praying things that matter not to spiritual things. Yet the church will tell you, you know, you should bring everything in prayer and pray. Bring everything. Like what? Like what? What do you think that everything is? Shamelessly and irrelevantly make God a witness to their follies and fancies. Men are so silly and crass. These are no my words. These are Calvin's words. So silly and crass that they venture, which you hear this, to disclose to God desires so base they would be ashamed to reveal them to man. End quote. What Calvin's saying there is, how pathetic is it that we would take things to God that we would never reveal to man? Because we'd be too embarrassed. <laughs> and we're not talking about man, we'd be saying, but maybe a believer, to a Christian. Well, I couldn't. Hear. I know that prayer would be too pathetically carnal. 
I think that quote takes care of a whole lot of things. Takes care of a whole lot of the prayer and teaching on we have not because we ask not. How sinful he takes worldly things to a holy God. Is our prayer and in turn our relationships with God not truly seen how quickly we skip over heavenly conversations and how shallow we are with our fellow men? As a pastor over the years, it's, it's no hard to see where somebody's at in their personal prayer life based on the conversations that they're terrified of having with you. Based on how quickly they are to avoid talking about the word. Based on how quick they are about changing the subject. Or not even changing the subject. Never even bringing the subject of God up. Never even bringing the subject of the word up. We used to call it keeping the rabbit out of the heart. Whatever you want to call it. Keeping the word alive. So quick at skipping over heavenly conversations. Cannot wait to bypass it to get to something so carnal. This is why the church, the, the outreach church, whatever you want to call it, the pragmatic, seeker-friendly church, it avoids the conversations because it's catering. It's catering to them who don't Seek God. It's catering to them who don't want to seek God. It's catering to them who are full of pride and ego and bravado. So we do shallow relational stuff. Now you may be asked the question is, how do we one name people? Through the word. We preach the word. <laughs> it's not as it does the saving anyway, is it? Surely if we truly approach God because we have no righteousness of our own, we'd be less lightly act prideful and sorted in front of our brothers and sisters. A man or a woman who never bears their soul to a brother is truly a man that's never bared their heart and soul to the Lord. I can end quote there, it's mine. <sighs> If people want to just talk about everything other than heavenly things in the Word, then it's proof of where they're bearing their soul to the Lord. No relationship, no relationship will stand the test of time. Godly relationships, none of them will stand the test of time if it's not united in the love and intimacy of a relationship with God in the Word first. Just, I'll scatter. A man who bears his soul to the Lord will surely be at peace with man. No matter where the conversation goes. Too many are uncomfortable when the conversation starts heading towards sin. Oh, ready to have a palpitation. You won't have that if you're bearing that to God. Yet a man who humbly comes to the throne room of grace fears no day conversations. He fears not those conversations. How free are we if we fear honest, truthful conversations? How free are we? Really? Many churches then make the fatal mistake. Add this, attracting rebels who join due to mutual resentment and fell into this trap or what they're against because the church is more active in talking about what it's against and what it's for. They find when the dust settles, they have nothing binding the people except a mutual resentment or something that they stood against. We get letters from some people during the lockdown saying, can you tell us what church they go to that's anti-lockdown? We get back and say, we're not interested in what church is anti-lockdown. We're going to tell you about, where, where do you live? Somebody would say, well, I'm in Edinburgh. Other people say, I'm in this part of the country, I'm in that part of the country. He says, we're not interested in helping you find an anti-lockdown church. We're helping you find a church that, that preaches the word. 
If that's what you think's binding is here, then it's not going to last long, is it? It's consumer Christianity. It's not what they give, it's what they get. And the conversations never move for mutual agreement and other matters, but no heavenly matters. When it comes to heavenly matters, it only ever remains in the shallows because they don't have any real intimacy with Christ. Always fighting against something. Okay, time's really gone. I've not even got to the verses here. Close verse, chapter 16, verse 28, 33. Your fingers are going to be so. I came forth from the Father and I've come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciple says to him, see now you speak plainly and use no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe indeed the hour is coming? Yes, has come, has now come that you will be scattered. Each to his own and I will leave and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace and the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk.